0: Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. All right, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our scripture for this morning comes from Luke chapter four, verses. I'm going to read verses sixteen through thirty. So hear now God's word. Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. He was, or as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blinds, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. with wrath. And they rose up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And this is the word of God. You may be seated. What 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 would I have to say in the next 30 minutes? That would make you so angry, you drive me out to the tallest dune and try to throw me off. That's a very dark hypothetical, I'm sorry. But for a minute, come with me. What could I say that would make you so filled with anger, you try to throw me off the tallest dune? If I insulted the Chicago Bears... And recited their long history and losing and futility. Questioned your sanity for rooting for such a long history of losing. Would that do it? Some of you, it looks like some of you were a little closer. If I announce from uh, this Sunday forward, our worship band will play exclusively with kazoos. Apparently two of us are getting thrown off the dune on that one. Uh, what could I say that could make you so angry that you'd, you'd try to kill me? I know, yeah, nothing, right? Nothing. Um, and I'm pretty confident that's true. Uh, but I'm starting this Sunday on such a dark note because Jesus preaches a sermon and the result is the people who hear him Attempts to kill him. But it's actually worse than that. He's in his own hometown. He gives his first hometown sermon. And his hometown people try to throw him off a cliff. I remember my first ever sermon. It was at my home church. It was not good. And after all the misery I put those people through, they thanked me at the end. Inconceivably. They didn't try to throw me off the cliff. So what does Jesus say that almost gets him killed? What did he he speak to them that made them so mad they forced him to the top of the cliff and tried to throw him off? Well, that's the question I want to pursue this morning. And I am confident the answer will surprise you. So let's break it down. What Jesus says, 1 at time And and the first thing Jesus says in this passage is, I am good news for the poor. Jesus is good news for the poor. So if you are poor, Jesus has good news for you, which immediately raises the question, who are the poor? Well, Jesus, he's picked up the scriptures and he's He's read from Isaiah, it's Isaiah 61, and Isaiah 61 answers that question pretty explicitly, who the poor are. It's, it's listed out for us. I'm anointed by the Spirit of God to proclaim good news to the poor. So who are they? Well, then he tells us. It's the captives. It's the blind. It's the oppressed. The good news for the poor is for the captives, the blind, and the And what's clear is that's not the only time we get a list like this in Luke's gospel, defining the poor in this way. When John the Baptist is not sure that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus responds to the disciples of John by saying, Yes, I am the Messiah. Here's my proof. And this is what he says, Luke 7.22. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. The poor are the blind, those who can't walk, the lepers, the deaf. That's the list of Isaiah 61 repeated where Jesus is saying, this is proof I am the Messiah. And then he does it one more time in Luke 14 verses 12 and 13 when he encourages his disciples to invite the poor into their homes, to eat and to share fellowship with them. To who are the poor in Luke 14, 12, and 13. We'll listen again. Uh, Jesus said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind." you beginning to see who the poor is as defined by Luke. And as he unpacks Jesus' ministry. This is really important because a lot of times when Christians read Luke 4, they want to narrow that interpretation into, well, the poor are those who are, are spiritually poor. That's a reference to sinners. And while I believe that's a part of the reference, that's not how the word gets defined through the gospel of Luke. The poor are, are the blinds, the captives, the prisoners, those who can't walk, those who are deaf. And I'll speak to, to more of, of how this is a reference to spiritual poverty, but that's not precisely what Jesus is saying. And that's incredibly important we not miss that, because if we think this is just a reference to sinners, we will not understand why people are so angry at Jesus for what he says. So one last time to review. Who are the poor? The poor are the blinds, those in captivity, those who need freedom, the blind, the deaf, those who cannot walk. In other words, it's those who are out. In that society, if one of those things was true of you, people looked at you and said, God doesn't like you the way he likes me. Because that's the only reason you'd be blind or you would be poor or you'd be in prison. Is You've done something for yourself to raise that condition to you so that's who the poor are so that raises the next question okay well how is Jesus good news for the poor and his answer is pretty simple Jesus says I can set you free there's one word here in Luke 4 that is used twice it's translated liberty in the ESV pretty good for us given that's our name But it's the Greek word, uh, aphasis. And any time a word is repeated in a few verses, it's important. And it's even more true in this passage because while Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61, he actually actually pulls in a line from Isaiah 58. And in that line from Isaiah 58 is that word, liberty, aphasis. Jesus so wants this word front and center in his sermon, he brings in another line from Isaiah 58 to make it clear. He has come to set us free. So how does Jesus set us free? Well, in, in this passage, it's, it's liberty from bondage, release from prison and captivity. And that is what a phasis often means throughout the New Testament. The Greeks would use that word when you were released from prison. If you were released from prison, you experienced And So Jesus sees people... As in bondage, as captive, as prisoners, who need to be released. And when he says, I have good news for the poor, he's saying, it's because I can release you. So what do we need released from? What are we captive to? And Luke's looks very clear on this front. He ends the gospel with this word, aphasis, a liberty, release. Luke twenty-four, forty-six and forty-seven. Jesus after resurrection says this. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise on and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness, it's the same word liberty Ephesus. for the forgiveness of sins, should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So to, 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 to have liberty we need. Released from our sins. But notice how Jesus describes our sin condition in Luke 4. We do not just need release from the guilt our sin causes us, but we need release from the bondage and the captivity sin puts us under. And Jesus is saying he can release us from both. The bondage sin has us in as well as the guilt sin has given to us. But that raises the question, what does that have to do with the poor? The list of the poor. Those who can't walk, those who can't see, those who can't hear. Well, What we do as human sinners is we go off and create societies where we shut certain people out. We cut them off. If they are sick, if they are weak, if they are broken, not what we want them to be. We, we consider them out. And Isaiah is saying two things here in Isaiah 61. One, he can release us from our captivity, set us free. And two, he is going to include people that human beings exclude. The people who get shut out, he's bringing back in. The people who don't have access to the kingdom of God, he's going to make sure they have access to the kingdom of God. And So Jesus says all that. He reads all that from Isaiah 61. Then he sits down. And says, the person Isaiah is speaking of is me. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Another way of saying that, you the poor just had good news preached to you. Because I can, I can set you free. It's a powerful one-sentence sermon. And I know what you're thinking. Tim, Jesus preached a one-sentence sermon. (laughs) Something to think about. uh, To which I say to you, I am not Jesus. (laughs) Because Jesus is doing something here in his sermon I hope never to do in my own sermons. The, The sermon he preaches is about himself. And by making it about himself, now everyone in the synagogue has to decide... Is Jesus the servant of Isaiah 61? Is this the one with good news for the poor? So what will their response to Jesus be? And relatedly, what will your response to Jesus be? And maybe you're starting to think, oh, that's why they almost killed Jesus. He claimed to be the servant of Isaiah 61, and they didn't believe him. But that's not what happens. Verse 22 All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They liked the one sentence sermon. They think maybe Jesus is the one. And then they ask a question Is not this Joseph's son? And that's where things turn. And so crucial to understanding this passage is understanding what they meant by that question. Is this not Joseph's son? And we can be pretty confident we know what they meant by asking that question because of how Jesus responded to them. And he responds to them with a cultural saying, Physician, heal yourself. And that was a cultural expression, an idiom. And what it meant was, take care of your own first. If you were a doctor, you would take care of your friends and family for free. They could come over to your house at any time, right? So your, your friend, if you were a doctor, could come over and be like, i got this weird spot on my back. Would you take a look at it really quick? It just kind of itches and it's weird. And you had to do it. You had to look at it, even though you didn't want to. You had to help because they were your own. And so, when uh, they say, Is this not Joseph's son? what they're saying is, The Messiah is one of our own. And he owes us first. So, how is Jesus going to respond to their expectations? And he's, he's pretty direct. He references two Old Testament stories. First, the, the widow from Zarephath, which we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus picked the story of a widow. He has good news for the poor. And who often are some of the first to get, get shut out from society? The poor, it's, it's widows. And then Jesus says something a little confrontational. He says, when the prophet Elijah went to that widow, there were many widows in Israel God could have sent Elijah to, but he didn't. He sent Elijah outside the boundaries of Israel to Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. What Jesus is saying implicitly is, my salvation is not just going to be for you here in my hometown. My grace is going to extend beyond these borders. Then Jesus references the story of Naaman. Naaman wasn't poor in the, uh, the money, wealth sense. He was a rich man. He was a military commander. But he had leprosy, which would have meant him meant he was poor, an outcast. And again, Jesus says the same thing. There were lots of lepers in Israel when the prophet Elisha healed Naaman. But God didn't send Elisha to those lepers, He sent them to Naaman. Again, Jesus is saying, My my grace is going to extend beyond the boundaries of your expectations. You're starting to see what Jesus is saying, why they are so angry. Why they try to kill him. The answer is grace. Grace to religious people makes them angry for two reasons. One is, is as I've, I've hinted, Jesus' grace extends beyond acceptable borders. We all have borders for the grace of God, and Jesus crosses them because he writes, No one off. So the poor in Luke 4 were the people whom polite society wrote off. And To highlight that, there's a moment in Jesus' ministry where the disciples come upon a blind man, and their, their initial question is, who sinned, this man or his parents? Which is another way of saying, it's, it's his fault that he's blind. And Jesus says, no, you're not thinking right. But it's easy to do that then if you believe someone's blind from their own faults. Then they are are cursed by God and therefore on the outs. Same thing happens to prisoners. Someone's in prison because they are a bad person. And certainly there are people who have done awful things in prison. There are also, as we've seen throughout history, a lot of innocent people that end up in prison. But we write them off, whether they're guilty or not, because they're on the outs. And Jesus comes into his hometown and says, My good news is for exactly these types of people. So I want to invite you to ask the question this morning, is, is your life good news for the poor? Because one of the best ways to determine how you would have responded to Jesus' message is how you respond to the poor today. How much grace do you have welling up inside you? This past week I got to spend some time at Pacific Garden Mission with uh, my brother in Christ, Phil. From time to time, I like to do workplace visits with with congregants. Sort of like uh, take your child to work day, but it's take your pastor to work day instead. (laughs) So I did that with Phil, who serves as an evangelist at Pacific Garden Mission. Uh, And my day there was sort of like watching Luke 4 just come to life. Good news for the poor. And there was one moment I, I will not ever forget. Phil and I were talking in the cafeteria, and a, a man from Venezuela who speaks no English comes up to us. It was one of the even things that I had no idea how many um, numbers of, of refugees are in Chicago, poor and vulnerable, trying to make money to send back to their family. And through the translation app on his phone, the words come out. Will you please pray for me? Tears coming down his face. He's cut off from his family, he's poor, he's vulnerable, in a foreign city, cannot speak the language. You see that for the reality for the poor in much of our world, there is very little good news. I try to imagine that myself, traveling thousands of miles, leaving my family behind, trying to get a better life for them. He's coming from Venezuela, a country destroyed by oppressive rulers in a socialistic system that does what it does, keeps the rulers wealthy and the poor oppressed. He most likely walked from Venezuela to our southern border, a harrowing journey that would cost $2,000, encountering multiple cartels and people of violence along the way, ready to overcharge him and take advantage of him and his vulnerability. Then he comes to the United States where it will cost him another $500 to get a work permit. Imagine that, a society that charges the poor to work. Then to file a legal asylum claim, he will need legal representation, thousands of dollars, because our legal system is expensive and does not consider the poor. And then he walks into a country where a large contingent of people will refer to him as, as the worst kind of person, a rapist, a murderer. And I know our, our border crisis is complex and good Christians will and should disagree about how to respond with policy to those things. I'm not addressing those questions. I'm addressing the, the vulnerable poor. Is there any good news for him? And that's what was beautiful about that moment for me. Here's a place in Chicago created by Christians that is good news for him. It's a place to sleep. It's food to eat. It's help. But even more powerful than that, here's, here's a man... And Phil, that even though they don't speak a word of the same language, that refugee looks at Phil's life and says, that man is good news for me. He loves me. And he will pray for me, even though I've not understood a word that he has said. So is your life good news for the poor? If someone worked through your bank statement this week, would there be enough evidence to convict you as someone who is good news for the poor? How much hostility do you hold to people who see the world differently than you, who come from a different culture than you, from a different generation than you? How much grace do you extend to people who disappoint you, who you disagree with? Now, Phil told me I could talk about my time with him on one condition, and that is not talk about him too much. So I probably already have to repent a little bit later, and I'm not looking over there because he might be unhappy with me. But I just have to say, I, I was just so moved by watching him. He loved criminals and drug addicts, people facing trial. And he spoke to them with the same joy and kindness he speaks to me with. And I want to be like that. And there's the only way to, believe, to become like that, to believe that the only way you become like that is to believe that when Jesus extended his grace to me, he was expending his, expanding his grace beyond the borders of what he should have. I was outside the borders of God's grace, yet He crossed that line anyway to come get me. And that means nothing will evoke more opposition than the radical nature of God's grace to religious people. If you believe you're within the boundaries of God's goodness, that you deserve it, that He owes you whatever it is that He has given you, then when you see someone you don't think He owes, you will look down on them. That is Jesus' good news for the poor. Are you poor? And if you can't overwhelmingly embrace, I'm a captive. I'm blind. I'm outside the boundaries of God's grace, yet he crossed anyway. If you you don't believe that with every ounce of your soul, you'll never be good news for the poor. Because the poor will only be those you don't want included. Because they're outside the boundaries of the grace of God. So that's first. Uh, What makes them angry? Jesus' grace goes further than they want it it to go. It's going to Naaman the Syrian. Naaman's out. He's a Syrian. It's, it's going to the, the widow in Zarephath. No, it should come to us first. And Jesus says no. And then the second reason why they're angry is they refuse to embrace their poverty. They believed because they are God's people, God's chosen people, because Jesus is from their hometown. Jesus owes us, which is them refusing to identify as poor, one who needs release, one who needs forgiveness. What they're saying is, you owe us, Jesus. You better do what we want, or we want nothing to do with you. They see themselves as, as Jesus' creditors, as the one with the power, the cachet. Jesus has to fit into their expectations. And Jesus responds, and this is going to sound harsh, but it, it's true. Jesus responds, I do not owe you anything. He has offered them release from their sins a new community that includes the excluded Him, He has offered them so much, but he makes clear, I I don't owe you that. Which raises the question, what do you think God owes you? Growing up in church, I heard two things that made it sound like if you live in a certain way, God will give you a good life. If you, if you obey God, if you're pure, God will give you a fantastic marriage. In other words, if you obey God, he will give you what you want. If you are generous, God will bless you financially. Obey God, and he's in your debt. He has to perform for you. If you obey the rules of the Bible, then you are a good person, and God will give you a good life. That's how religion works. Religion says, I've kept the rules. I've done what I'm supposed to do. I've done what I should. Therefore, God owes me this. And religious people who live like this, two things become the result. One is that God is in their debt. He has to, he has to perform for them. Certain outcomes, certain expectations. But the other thing, and this is where I want to land our time this morning, the other thing is they absolutely want to keep out the people they don't think are keeping the rules. And that is hostility towards those they think are not keeping the rules. I hope uh, if you get the chance, you'll go out and see the movie The Jesus Revolution Sometimes this week. All right. It's the it's the stories of hippies coming to Christ in incredible numbers, and I've heard apparently we have some former hippies in this room, and I want to see pictures just to be clear. But there there was a lot of tension in that revival, because traditionalist Christians believe you had to dress a certain way to be a Christian, no sandals, only a suit. Of course, Jesus wore exclusively sandals, but that's another conversation. Traditionalist Christians believe some instruments were okay, others were not. You can play the organ, don't touch the drums. Even though symbols are mentioned in the Psalms. It's my life versus a drummer. So, as, as you're watching that movie, the question becomes, why so much hostility from Christians who wore suits, demanded organ music, towards hippies who were finding faith in Jesus? Why was that happening? It's the same thing happening in Luke 4 when we refuse our spiritual poverty, when we believe we are spiritually superior because we dress the right way, we worship the right kind of music, we vote the right way, we speak with the right language, when we refuse our spiritual poverty and believe we are something, the result will always be hostility towards those who, do not, who are not what we want them to be. It's why religious people are guilty of some of the worst hostility and violence towards people of cult- different cultures, races, and socioeconomic status. That's the history of the world. We can't ignore that. Because the moment you believe the way you live makes you more acceptable to God, and God owes you, the more freedom you have to look down on those who are different from you. Luke 4 is not the only time religious people have tried to do violence because they believed in their spiritual superiority. The life of religion is a life of hostility towards others. It's why I love this quote from Richard Lovelace. I've used it many times. I will probably use it many times more. He writes... Speaking of religious people who don't believe in their spiritual poverty, their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches on the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. Graceless living is proved by anger, Towards those who are different from you. if you are in the way of Jesus, a Christian, why? Why are you a Christian? Is it because you, you believe you keep the rules? Or because you were in prison and poor and Jesus set you free? Have you embraced your spiritual poverty? Because the beauty of the gospel is God does not owe us anything. He is not in our debt. God owes you, He owes me nothing. But what do we find? His own Son entering into our world and saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to speak good news to you, to set you free, to give you sight, to make a new world. And that's why if you read about any major revival in the history of the church, it always starts with Christians having a sense of their own personal sin. I'm the problem, I'm spiritually poor. But it's not a shaming experience, right? When I say we're spiritually poor, it's not a shaming experience because alongside that announcement that I am poor, my overwhelming reality of my sin, right along that poverty, is the Son of God saying, I have good news for you. I can set you free. And so as we begin two years of a gather initiative together this morning, my prayer and my hope is not a building that looks a little bit nicer, but that we are a house of prayer for all people. And the only way we become that is if we understand two things are true at the exact same time. God owes me nothing, yet freely gives me his son. And as Romans said, if he has not withheld his son from me, what, what, do I, what is in store for us? The son of God became poor himself. He, he experienced the sham trial that all the poor experienced. He became a captive himself, arrested where even the man who condemned him to die said, well, he's innocent, but let's kill him anyway. And he became a prisoner, nailed to a cross where he could not move. The response to Jesus was the the same throughout his entire life. People either killed him or worshipped him. He's the only one who can set us free. The people of Nazareth made their choice. What's yours? Let me pray. Father... For those of us who just were, man, you said the grace is the truest thing about us. You owed us nothing, and yet here we find ourselves about to to come to your table where Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shed for us. And it's just, wow. And So I pray now we would just, for those of us, and we're all in, may we have an encounter with your grace. We are welcome at your table. Not because we brought our own meal, our own riches, our own capacities to your table, because we we had nothing. (laughs) And our own inadequacies are met by the, the, the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. May we receive that as good news. May our sin not be a sense of shame. May it be a sense of causing us to flee to the work of Jesus on our behalf. We, we pray now, or I pray now, not as someone who deserves a, a spot at your table, but who receives it on the basis of, of Jesus. What good news for the poor, of which I gladly identify. And so, Father, now do that among us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.